So we're sitting, I'm sitting here with Kelvy. This is Sita Magnuson. I'm sitting with Kelvy Bird in the lobby of the uh, Hyatt Regency in Bonita Springs in Florida. We're working, but we have a little bit of a break. And so we decided that we might just have a conversation about some of the stuff that we've been hearing about and sensing into and just record it. So forgive all the other extraneous noises. Hopefully it's not too much of a distraction. But it's actually one of the things that we've been talking about is how we stay steady as scribes when there's so much stuff going on everywhere. So there's stuff going on in the lobby, but that's just like the immediate tier of things going on. But we were just listening to, we were both scribing a session on artificial intelligence and before that, a session that had to do with evolution. evolution. <laughs> and we both were across the room from each other. But then at the end, we kind of met in the middle of the ballroom and admitted we both felt sick to our stomachs. <laughs> Sat on the floor. <laughs> we didn't cry because we were still around people. But <laughs> um, yeah, it's a lot to hold. So I'm curious, Kelby, what you're hearing like in some of the work that you've been doing and in spaces you find yourself, what are some of the things that, you're, that are sort of on your radar oh, most? Gosh, you know, it's really hard to be neutral to that response because of my personality, which is a little bit um, easily triggered by potential disaster and I have to be really careful not to fall into my disaster mentality which then springs up my um, sort of resilience okay we can get through this how are we gonna are we gonna die are we gonna survive thing so that's a preface and um, what I'm hearing more and more of and seeing is just the really immediate um, environmental situation that we're in. There's obviously so much else going on, but it just seems like the urgency of the climate situation um, is more forefront than it ever was before. And, but I think that's also my bias. That's how I've been listening. And, um, and then within that, there are, I'm hearing a lot of, you know, the stories around suffering. You hear the bushfires in Australia and the trauma that it's causing. But I'm also hearing a lot of stories around solutions. But um, I'm having a harder time personally putting my energy to that when I feel so emotionally disrupted by the suffering. Do you have coping strategies or like things you do? I am trying to figure out what those are because my coping strategies that worked for my current condition maybe a year ago, I'm realizing um, I don't think they're going to be working anymore. Mm-hmm. Oh, I want to cry. <laughs> It's um, my coping strategies in the past have been around the work, you know, so you work all day, your bodies are achy, you take a bath. 
or your brain is full of the content that we are exposed to and you know watch Netflix for an hour um, or plus um, <laughs> or too much flying and you know time around uh, eating food that we can't control so go home and do shopping right away and and eat healthy like prepare meals for myself and then try to go for a walk in the woods as a coping strategy but I'm feeling like the disruption is a, is greater it's almost and like the coping strategies have to be more than at the individual level like there needs some collective coping or some collective maybe it goes into the collective trauma space but how you yeah. navigate that with, with other people who are also necessarily impacted by things I don't know if it's coping right like I wonder if it's really a fundamental shift in being and how we orient so that the disruption isn't as unsettling like I so I read this I heard this story about in Australia about um, there was an experiment between birds that are they breaking some birds um, were in a lab and some birds were out in the wild and the birds that were nesting eggs in the lab didn't change their behaviors so the eggs hatched in the same way the chicklings were the same size or the the little birds were the same size when they as they would have been born before the ones in the wild because of the increased temperature were smaller so somehow the mother bird tapped into was like sending messages through the egg shell to the unborn chicklets bird 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 <laughs> little birds <laughs> um to to modify their size based on the the conditions that they would need to adapt to so it's almost like that like what are how are we maybe i maybe i'm stuck my size but what am i doing with the next generation to help it be more resilient for a changing reality mm. um it makes me yeah it makes me think about the it triggered for me the question about coping versus like transformation and it's interesting that that happens so quickly because you think that those that evolution typically you know my my assumption would have been that would have taken much longer for that change to happen that the birds are smaller so what are the immediate things and then what are the coping mechanisms that we do need in place until we can actually evolve into different ways of being with one another I don't know what those are but I suspect that they involve um, you know it's there's a necessity to do that with other people whereas like the ones you gave examples yeah. of before are like how do I personally Internal. take care of my myself yeah. and retreat and yeah. I wonder if that space of retreat is just shrinking and what does it also mm. mean for those of us who really need that space well I think you're right I mean in how you live and the choices you've made model that that's like living in community and building community is so necessary to well-being in this day and age. I just don't have that as strongly right around me, physically right around me yet. But globally? Globally, yes. But there's something to being, there's something to still like really human stuff, you know, making a meal with people and sitting down at a table 
and having conversation face to face. Like that's, I grew up with that. And if you live alone and don't have a family, you don't have that. And so that's something like, it's a very basic like cycle of nurture, something nurturing. So maybe it has to do with how we keep ourselves nurtured Mm-hmm. Like how we reinforce our well-being and whether we live alone or with families or in community or not or city, country. Like what are things that reinforce our individual well-being so that when we are with people we show up in a generous and um, open way. Mm-hmm. Some people have been... In conversation with, I've been using the language of life giving, mm. which I find really appealing. Mm. It's hard to think about all that within the context of like some of the, the stuff we're just listening to, or those, you know, the the there are these two realities that I feel like are coexisting. Well, there's more than two certainly, but um, two dominant realities that feel really heavy and very disconnected at the moment. And one of them is sort of one we're just hearing about about you know, the future of AI and the role of corporations and the, the consolidation, further consolidation of power. power. Um, and then at the same time, you hear all these wonderful stories about other ways and other solutions and different ways of being together and living, but they feel uneven in their, the power feels really mm. uneven. And, you know, a lot of people and communities are thinking about that, how to disrupt that balance or change that balance. But the f- if I think one of the reasons I felt so sick to my stomach is that I've seen, and I think in our work we've seen firsthand how that power, the power of money, mm. you know, to be very, like, and, and of sort of old models of capitalism are so strong. Mm. And, and it feels a little <laughs> overwhelming to, to sort of be confronted with that again and again in this work mm. and feel not wanting to be disheartened or feel like there's no hope. And yet, it feels very, yeah, it feels like, hmm, I don't know. It's hard to see through it sometimes. And it makes me think about the role of the scribe. And I think you were speaking before to this about, um, you know, when we started 20-something years ago, 25 years ago, we would, we were scribing for facilitated processes that were geared towards finding solutions for things. And I think the role has changed. What we do has been consistent. We draw while people talk. But the role that we serve in society, I think, has changed. And you were speaking earlier to the sense of responsibility that comes with this knowledge that we're exposed to. Like, all this, it's not just data. It's not just these... content of one professor or one speaker at a conference it's this this amalgamated um nice vocabulary thank you me. yeah it was, that was rough there <laughs> this amalgamated um amount of information that you can't not stitch it together so we were talking about money and and you were talking about it in one context, and I'm thinking, oh, well, that's something that's in regards to the bushfires in Australia, that's also um, something in that picture. And, and so, you know, money, the flows of money comes up all over the place. 
power comes up all over. Like there are these threads that, because I'm rambling, but because what we do is make sense of disparate pieces and hold them together in pictures, it's hard not to also do that um, at another level, which is like picture to picture Mm -hmm. and then client to client and then sector to sector. And when we're seeing these patterns, it's really hard to know how to hold it. So the role of the scribe, I think, is also needing to evolve. We were talking earlier about how that responsibility, it feels like that's a a responsibility that I I feel and I suspect you feel that the, the field sort of needs to step into that there's a there's sort of an urgent need to be having that conversation or this conversation with yeah. a broader group of people and um. yeah I'm, I'm I know a lot of people who are feeling responsibility to be engaging in the public conversation about society and doing something about it and me included and um you know, speaking personally, I often feel quite hopeless. Mm-hmm. No matter what it looks like I'm doing from the outside, <laughs> you know, I feel helpless. Like um, every scribe I talk to or every workshop I lead or whatever I do is just a, just a grain of sand in a beach of effort. And um, so, yeah, I don't know. Sorry, that this is just... This is just a bummer of conversation. <laughs> So maybe <laughs> to pivot then towards something that feels like, uh, yeah. what, what would you, like, where do you feel called to move, assuming there are no barriers, you know, and that there's, it's sort of open field? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Well, you know, even you thinking of that question, it makes me, it makes me think about um, just the power of inquiry, you know, staying curious and um, not closing down. And also the power of the heart. Like, it's, it's so, um, I think fundamentally for me that that's, that's kind of the base note, you know, like no soup could be made without like, <laughs> stock, you know. I don't think anything's really going to change unless we're able to bring our full heart into it. Um, so how we stay open and curious and love. I agree with you that. And I also feel like one of the things that's been piquing my interest is the, um, I think as you know, I've been for some time really geeking out on the um, I geek out, geek out on things a lot, as you know, <laughs> and was have done sort of a deep dive into um, intelligence gathering, and was looking at like given you know the models of of um, you know leading from love and like that I think that that speaks to me around intention and heart like mm-hmm. the heart space, but there's like a cunningness and a there's like some tools that I feel like might be interesting and worthwhile to explore Mm. so for me my one of my areas of interest is how do you apply some of the sense making and intelligence gathering Mm. um 
kind of tools and practices into the mm. field where, mm. because I've seen just at a smaller scale, so within the networks that I'm part of, that the accelerated um, trans, you know, the transmission of of knowledge and connections, people like relationships mm. at, by by proxy that that accelerates a whole bunch of things and makes things possible that were not before. And we've seen that in, like I've scribed sessions about that in the business landscape, but I haven't really seen a really deep and applied, like that applied into transformational change mm. at the global, like at human systems level. I'm super interested in that. Like this living outside of uh, um, like the corporate space, something that has no that is not being driven by uh, financial gain or financial value. Maybe that's part of it, but that it's not driven by that. And I, I sense more and more there's, there's certain like pockets of people. I mean, you're tapped into a lot of that where people are starting to lift their head and see different ways. Mm. But I think there's some like, it has to be more than just calling on people's mm. hearts. I think mm. it's, not, it's not just that. Yeah, I think that's a totally important component of it, but we're activating our opening curiosity. Yeah. So I think, like related to the the heart space, is the social field. So that's something I've been learning more about this year and trying to experience. And a, like, what what is the social field, and what is it to be aware of the social field, and how do gestures or thoughts um, impact the social mm-hmm. field? And so, as scribes we are influencing the social field. So if we're in a room and we're upset, that's not not part of the room. Like that is, that becomes part of the room and the the energy of the room. And likewise, if we are in the room and we're um, open and curious, um, but the rest of the room maybe is really struggling with something, that open curiosity will also affect the room because it's in the energy of the field and um so there's something to i mean you can you can look at the politics now in the u.s which is the reverse right so it's this like fear it's it's the fear and denial kind of energy that's seeding into the social fabric um but uh I think that that's part of the equation Mm -hmm. is how we're aware of social fields and the shifts in social fields. So how does our presence um, influence the sort of cohesion or the fragmentation of the field Mm -hmm. um, that we're in? I was just in a session and I'm going to do that thing like I can't remember who it was. We're both famous for this. I don't remember anything about it right at the moment, except that one of the things that came up was, you know, in the in the complexity space, that you can't like to prediction, which we were just hearing about. There are there are things you you can't really you can't accurately uh, predict in complex spaces sometimes because small things. Kevin Kelly writes a lot about that. Like small things have. Um, small moves or shifts in a field or in a system can have huge rippling cascading effects Mm -hmm. that you know because the interconnection is so numerous that we don't really know what impacts what and so playing with that like thinking of the fabric of you know space time playing with 
ripples and movements yeah. in the social field is super interesting because we don't know what is yeah. possible if you can yeah. do that. And also, we we only see so much. Yeah, like the factors at play are so numerous that when you're think talking about changing act like behavior in people or shifting like mindset or um, decision making, that um, that feels really exciting. And it also makes me think of the fact of like who as scribes like who we are and how we're we're showing up in those spaces that's um not how we're showing up well yes how we're showing up but who who are the scribes who are kind of helping in not saying there's sort of an end goal that we're moving towards but how are we disrupting or or sort of causing ripples Mm -hmm. and um i think that's something i would like love to think more about how do you bring more people into this you're doing that through workshops and training and I think just the exposure obviously increases people's awareness around it but um yeah the sort of pathways into the work yeah well even this time like the two of us scribing together like having the opportunity here a client that's willing to bring two of us in instead of one um and experiment with the dual scribing on a board which is to some extent, like a, a technical or um, you know a, a craft experiment, but then today we were scribing across the room from each other, and so that's more of an energy experiment. Where how does the line that we're holding as two points in the room mm-hmm. affect the quality of the room? And it's less about the it's about the drawing, but it's also about our being in the room as two people in a in a ballroom space, and the quality of attention that we're holding together um and for the room so i think there's a lot of i think there's something to um maybe shifting how we're showing up as scribes for for groups and i I mean i know in china there there's a a lot more movement around going in together there are groups of people scribing uh and i think people are in china well our network in china (laughs) is not a huge generalization but um our network um mostly Jace has been putting a lot of attention to working in community, working as scribes in community. Uh, So we probably could be doing more of that. You said some interesting stuff yesterday around um, the Jungian archetypes, like the male-female or the sovereign and the lover, and we were talking about feminine, um, feminine power. I'm curious, like when you look at the field and you also just curious just from a statistics perspective or demographics like who's showing up to your workshops and do you have oh yeah what do you think about that is it all women or are there men involved it's 80 percent women sometimes 90 percent women so if you on average we have 18 people in a workshop and usually there are 16 women and one or two men but that's different from like gender, the, uh, yeah, feminine, exactly, yeah, exactly. So that, those are the genders of who's showing up. But, um, but, but I would say then it would be a higher percentage of like feminine, feminine energy, which I would define as an energy of uh, holding, mm-hmm. like people who care about uh, the quality of a container or holding spaces for others um, are emotionally intelligent. Um, have a sensitivity to others and proximity. Um, yeah, more relational. Or it's a more relational space. Mm-hmm. But that might also be... Um, yeah, it's, it's 
it's probably the nature of the work. It's probably also like what's in the workshop that's attracting those types of people. Um, Can you share that about the, the, the water and the fire? That was so interesting. Oh, yeah. I think it's a fact that I've heard because I'm trying to work on this image around the bushfires in Australia. And one of the articles I came across or somebody sent me had to do with in the Aboriginal culture, the men are the fire tenders or the fire keepers and the women are the water keepers or water tenders. I'm afraid I'm not using the right language, but um, I thought that was so interesting because when you start looking at what's going on, all the things that are happening with um, the environment now, these intense fires, the volcanoes that are happening, the, the earth, you know, the earthquakes, which there have always been earthquakes, but just the increase in these things and then um, the flooding. The flooding. <laughs> Uh, that's the, in, the intense water that's happening everywhere. It's almost like the masculine and the feminine of the earth itself yeah. is like rising up in conversation or something. I don't know. I, I don't know. But um, there's definitely, yeah, I've, I've, I've had my mind on the rise of the feminine for a few, you know, many years now of my whole career. <laughs> No one knows what a feminist I am. <laughs> every circle and every drawing is my own little intervention. Mm-hmm. But um, one thing that came up yesterday that I that I don't remember which session it was in, but was the shift from advocacy. Oh, it was on the one on vulnerability and courageous leadership. So it was the the shift from advocacy to inquiry where you go from having armor on and, and kind of, uh, you know, walking into things protected and prepared to, you know, put your arm into the air and lead millions versus the leadership that comes from, from being vulnerable mm-hmm. and being... Um, willing to sit with some disruption and and what was the rumbling like yeah. having like rumbling conversations where th- where things get a little undone you know not dissimilar from water like pouring down a stream or something um huh so that sort of brings us back to the beginning so maybe there's maybe this i mean If what's needed is more inquiry and more curiosity, that requires more openness. And then being more open requires more vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And to be vulnerable, you have to be willing to be unsettled. It's like living in an unsettling space. So... That's what um, I've been thinking a lot about lately. I feel like as I'm getting older, that that sort of living in a constant state of unsettledness yeah. is challenging, like physically challenging, physically challenging more than it used to be. And I think the, the, you know, the context or like the degree of unsettledness, what's the other word for that? Dis, <laughs> whatever that word is. But it's increasing like, you know, exponentially pretty much. And, um, from a capacity perspective, it does feel like it requires some, 
like a yeah. different way of like being vulnerable and actually then coming up with some solutions of how to navigate that. Yeah. Yeah. They're not just like retreat based because I do the same, just sort of try to fall back into myself in order to recollect. It's also like sometimes I go to, uh, this is way too much information, but sometimes I go to, to sleep just imagining being held, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm not with anyone and, and we're even traveling like you're alone too. And so imagining uh-huh. being held and just the secure, or like even when I was younger and my grandma, you know, you're held by your grandparents or someone who's more secure than mm-hmm. you. I mean, that's... I'm not talking about an intimate thing. It's more yeah, like yeah. a... Like um, someone who can say, like, it will all be okay. And um, somehow we need that. I you suppose know? that's why some people hold on to faith. But mm-hmm. it's, you know, that's something I... I think generally there's less and less of. So mm-hmm. I wonder what starts to replace that also... You know what? What is that? Yeah. What is that source? That. Um... Well. You know, if I pull back from my own little, you know, my own close-in feelings around it all, and you think of nature, like when you're out, mm-hmm. when you're out in the woods or swimming in a pond or wherever, like. Nature's so big, and we're you know we're just such a speck of nature and. Um, Maybe it has something to do with perspective, mm-hmm. you know, that it's it's easy to feel overwhelmed and unsettled when we're in the midst of something that's heated, and maybe what it is is a cooling, like we need some sort of, the balance is like cooling where we can pull back and have more air around us and give ourselves more space to see, like, a longer term picture of things. It brings up for me the questions about privilege and access oh, and, you know, that, I mean, I met, I know some people who we did some work with in Holyoke, Mass, who, you know, some young people who had really never been out of the city mm. and they live, I mean, we live in a very, uh, in an area surrounded by kind of wildness in mm. many ways and, um, the context that they were living in didn't allow them to have that perspective and that was sort of denied them for various reasons and one might say well all you have to do is just get you know go drive out of the city and there you go but I think the thing that's been really eating away at me is that we've we've built like we the royal we um human like western society have constructed all of these barriers I'd say that like you know in many ways our economic system is a barrier um, you know, I think a lot about the civic space also and how people are getting engaged in thinking differently. And there, the more I started to look at some of the challenges there of like, why do people not show up in that space? Why do people sort of delegate decision making to other people and not get sort of actively involved in it? And it's because we've built all these other systems that don't allow us to or don't allow people. And many of them were, ex- you know, and they were designed to keep people from participating. And feels like that perspective is the same like some people are afforded that perspective Mm. and some people are you know Mm. not and what does that mean and how do we how can we work to you know correct some of that I think that's a really really excellent point and I don't know 
<laughs> oh, on that note. Oh. Well, I, I'm very grateful to be here with you. Likewise. I mean, friendship seems to be something that at least is some balm. Yes. And I'm grateful for our friendship. Yeah, me too. <laughs>